It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah, You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This week on The Takeout, absolute radio royalty. Bill Curtis and Peter Sagal from NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week we are two things. What are those two things? A, relentlessly curious. B, steadfastly non-ideological. Lots of different voices come to the show each and every week. And this week I want to quote Jack Lemmon, a very famous actor, who said during his career, always send the elevator back down. What do you mean by that? Well, help those who are not at your Olympian heights of whatever the profession is. This show, well, that's exactly what's going on, because the two guests we have are sending the elevator down to me. Okay, They don't need to be here. They have got their lives and their careers in radio and podcasting and all the creative arts essentially set. One of them is a network legend. The other is a near legend. Peter Sagal is the near legend. Bill Curtis is the absolute legend. They I'm, legend both... I'm legend adjacent. Not a legend, but you can see it from where I am. Exactly. Exactly. And they're here in Washington, the greater Washington, D.C. area, doing their show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, at Wolf Trap. Sold out shows, two of them. And in between that, they've agreed to sit down with me here for the takeout. We're in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, suburban Washington, D.C., at Founding Farmers. We're going to have breakfast. Mike will be at the table ever so shortly to get our order and we're just going to enjoy a conversation with two people who really have created something amazing in american life if you're a national public radio listener five million of you listen to wait wait don't tell me i listen to it my entire family listens to it bill curtis was an established network and regional reporter of significant heft in the 60s 70s 80s 90s he's the voice of the movie anchorman if you know what i'm talking about so it's just great to have you with us, gentlemen. In other words, I had a career before. I yes. <laughs> you had a career, then a career, then a career. That's how you keep going in life. You build careers on top of careers, and you've done that, Bill. Well, Peter was uh, so good. He saved me from, I did. from the I, pile we, we of we retirement. Found him, we, found him, we found him laboring in his obscurity on his <laughs> massive country estate, strolling the grounds. And we said, you there, you there, come join us. <laughs> You know, I said to Bill, I said, you've built up over decades the reputation as the national anchorman, the man who, now that Mr. Cronkite is gone, truly represents the voice of truth. I would like you to come and squander that. Yes. Doing funny voices and fart jokes. (laughs) 
And I don't know why and who he could said resist? yes. I, who well, could resist? Well, if I put it that, that way, well, yes. I had all, already had uh, you know a little temptation with the Anchorman movie. Yes. I had to go through all that. Oh, am I ruined? This is the funny thing, quite literally, that I have discovered in my uh, somewhat limited career, which is that if you take somebody like Bill Curtis or my, my, my prior partner uh, in crime, Carl Castle, somebody who's known for the serious news, somebody right. who's known for speaking only... Stentorian. Yeah, speaking only facts in bass tones, usually early in the morning. If you give that person, man or woman, a chance to get a laugh, they will start balancing balls in their nose yes. like seals. Literally, just, literally just, run through fire. They will do, yeah, because Crawl it, over broken it glass. turns out, in, as a general rule, everybody who's known for being funny wants to be taken seriously, and everybody... <laughs> Everybody Funny wants to be taken seriously. Exactly. Everybody who's everybody who's serious wants to get laughs. Right. And exactly. That's, that's where we live. As I promised, Mike is at the table. Mike, it's good to see you again. We're at Founding Farmers in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. I will have the pan egg scramble that thing with uh, uh, sausage, spinach, and mushrooms. Is that right? And the side I'll have is hash browns. Oh, a side of hash browns. Yes. Peter. Oh, I'm I, I'm going to have the same thing except cut the cheese. <laughs> That's the level of humor we're That's dealing with. That's a fart with. joke. You just did a fart I joke. I warned you knew what you were doing before you got into this. And uh, I'll, epi- I'll the have the first episode. I know, and I'll have, I'll have grits, grits on the side, please. But could you, could you, for the television broadcast, CGI it into something healthy? <laughs> yeah, CGI into steamed broccoli. If exactly, you please. Bill Curtis. I'm going to raise you one uh, and have biscuits and gravy. Excellent. I haven't seen that on a. So what are you going to do, millennium. Bill? What are you going to do, Bill, when your wife hears this? You know, because gonna, she's, she, I know she's not here, so you can eat what you want. but well, she will find out. There are three I'm, cameras here. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to trick her and have her walking out in the lawn or something <laughs> during during the broadcast. So, for those of you who may not know, wait, wait, don't tell me. It's a show on more than 500 NPR stations, five million listeners every single week. You have a podcast as well that gets about a million downloads. I would just say this show. It's not quite there. We're working on it. But like I said, they sent we'll the elevator right, down. Man. We'll get it right. We're several floors down. We might be in the sub-basement in relationship to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. But I want to play you a soundbite of yours, Peter, from uh, 2011 about the show itself. That's number two, Sarah. Play that. Every week on this show, we take a look at the week's news, take a deep breath, and force ourselves to look again. Because if the world didn't want to be made fun of, it wouldn't behave that way, would it? It would not. The world needs to be made fun of. Is the point of the show... To inform or take the edge off a particularly harsh, harsh news week. It's like you're asking that of a bottle of whiskey. What is your purpose here? Are, you, to make are you, you supposed to make things better, more efficient, or just get us through the next hour? That is, that is basically our role. We, um, you know, we, we have a, a weird sort of niche in what we are the funny hour on public radio. Right. Which is, shall we say, we're contrary to the brand, as it were. Public radio, even more than I would say uh, network TV, has network news certainly, has this reputation of being very serious, very yes. responsible. Certainly the listeners feel that they, too, are part of this serious project. You know, most, most listeners, is my understanding, we've done focus groups, uh, turn on the radio and stand at attention. <laughs> Because <laughs> Waiting it's an for important orders. business. Yes. You know, which, you know, this, is, this, is, this, is not, this is an obligation as a citizen, not merely... Not merely for entertainment. And so we show up on the weekend making fart noises, doing rude jokes, saying unpleasant things about important people. Uh, and I think, I think we, we, we perform the role as a kind of release valve 
We're, I mean, they're, they're, you know, the, the whole medieval idea of the festival day where everything's sure. reversed and the jester becomes king and, and the king becomes, I don't know where the king goes, he takes the hour off. That's sort of us. And then after our hour, everybody can go back to listening to serious people talking about the health benefits of quinoa or whatever else NPR's got. You mentioned that you're the comedy hour on public radio, but there was another comedy hour that predated yours, Car Talk, which yes. was created by the producer of your show, Doug Berman. There, I want to run that a- sound bite. That's number one, Sarah. NPR came to me and they said, will you develop something for After Car Talk? I said, how about retirement? (laughs) That's what I was going to develop for After Car Talk. And from Car Talk, Wait, Wait came. Sort of, kind of. Yes, we have a shared lineage in that uh, Doug Berman, who created Car Talk, is our original uh, original executive producer. Now we call him our benevolent overlord. Yes. Uh, They're one in the same. They're one in the same. Not always benevolent, though. Not always benevolent. In his case, he's mostly benevolent, in my view. He's occasional. Well, you know, we all need a little evil. Um, And, yeah, uh, Car Talk held that position as, like, the the hour of comedy or, shall we say, uh, joviality on public radio. And the problem was is that people, as I understand it, I wasn't involved in this creation process, the problem was is that listeners to public radio would listen all week to the very serious news, uh, Robert Siegel at the time and other serious news people, and then they'd listen to Car Talk on Saturday morning, and then they would go away because it turns out there are other things to do than listen to the radio. Who knew? <laughs> on Saturday mornings. And the, the attempt was to come up with something that they would want to stick around and listen to a little bit longer before they went away. And the idea, as I understand it, was that our listeners enjoy news, um, and thus we should do something that was about the news, but wasn't news because there was enough news. And they came up with the idea of a news quiz. But the real um, decision about all of this was when early on, just after I became host, we had to decide whether we were going to be a serious quiz that um, rewarded our listeners for paying attention to the news and allowed them to get complicated answers correctly, allowing them to indulge in our listeners' favorite hobby, which is feeling smug. Or should we just goof around and say the rude things that we'd normally just say to each other on the air until somebody stopped us? And takes you off. And so it's been 21 years. It's and they been 21 for years. Some re- I guess they don't listen in NPR DC. <laughs> Thank God. That's the voice of Peter Sagan. We're also joined by Bill Curtis. We're going to spend segment two talking about Bill Curtis's amazing career in journalism and the show. Coming back for segment two, just a second. We're at Founding Farmers. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for being with us. The whole career can be summarized by a, one line. There was a time. <laughs> there was a time. A really time was. before cable. Yes. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. And in San Diego, one anchor man was more man than the rest. His name was Ron Burgundy. He was like a god walking amongst mere mortals. He had a voice that could make a wolverine purr. And suits so fine, they made Sinatra look like a hobo. Sinatra looked like a hobo. Wolverine purr. Bill Curtis has the voice that would make a wolverine purr, ladies and gentlemen. I know that for a fact. Bill Curtis, uh, that's Anchorman. It's one of the many things you've done in your career, stellar things in your career. It's probably what you're most associated with in contemporary times. But I want our audience to know about how you got started, your amazing career in Chicago. If you want to know Americans in my audience and those who are not Americans in my audience, how do we find out about Agent Orange? 
And how did the government step in and deal with that? It's because of Bill Curtis and an investigative story he did about that topic. It's a huge career. You can't summarize all of it, but I'm going to give you the mic. Run. Well, I run, will run with it, but, um, but let me say that the whole career can be summarized by a, one line. There was a time. <laughs> there was a time. A really time was. before cable. Yes. When only men read the news. <laughs> and, of course, all the women just kind of titter, you know, in the audience. But. Yeah. I don't, and think, that's, their I don't think that's tittering. I think it's gnashing of teeth. <laughs> yeah, gnashing of teeth, yes. And unsheathing of small, sharp yeah, objects. Exactly. Uh, 16 years old. I was uh, raised in Kansas, a little town of 10,000 independents. Got a job at the radio station and uh, had a naturally deep voice. I liked it. I, I had a wonderful boss, a mentor slash boss, who sort of taught as well as restricted you. And so I learned probably the best experience I've ever had, and then through college and law school. And then life is lucky. Life is lucky. And uh, a series of breaks. So I was, I graduated, I um, did okay. My moot court was argued before Harold Blackman, the uh, Supreme Court justice, the hero. And then um, a friend asked me to fill in for him. As news director, uh, well, and on the air. In Topeka. In Topeka. 1966. So I left my bar review class, went out, and did the 6 o'clock news, and uh, came around to 7 o'clock, and there was a cold front coming through. I had done the weather there, my part-time job, for two years, and um, suddenly a cameraman breaks in on two-way and said there's a tornado at the southwest edge of the city. And uh, we we considered it. The general manager is down there and trying to make up his mind whether to break in. It was lost in space, a CBS program. Yes. So it was a very hard decision. <laughs> and then somebody said, it's on the ground. It's just wiped out the apartment complex. That made the decision easy. It was headed for the Capitol. So we'll go on. So I went on. I'm 26, uh, without a coat, and uh, said... Uh, for God's sake, take cover. Well, those were the magic words. Uh, we were the only station in town, so everybody was watching us, 75% of the audience. And um, by God, most of them got into their basements. And you became effectively the emergency broadcast hub for Topeka for the next 24 hours. Communications, uh, we were calling in uh, by instruction, but calling in National Guard. Uh, do you have chainsaws uh, in Browning, uh, Kansas? You know, bring them in. Bring them in. And so, you were on the air for 24 hours. 24. It was an experience, you know, that I don't know that many people have had because what you said was real time. Um, you know, usually we, we live uh, in the reaction to right. uh, events. So it was uh, impressive. And I thought, God doesn't want any more lawyers. <laughs> so I'm headed out. So I send my tape out, as everybody does, and it was picked up in Chicago. And at that time, uh, lawyers, uh, you know, were rare. Today, everybody's a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I went to WBBM, the CBS affiliate, and stayed with CBS for 30 years. Yes. And became a correspondent in 70, covered the Manson trial, um, everything in between. Uh, then came back for a local anchor job. That's where the Agent Orange came up. Tell us about that. 
Well, I had a little investigative unit at a time when people didn't really know what investigation was by television. Now everybody has one. And uh, somebody handed me a manila envelope. And uh, it was, her name was Maud DeVictor. She worked for the VA. And I was writing a story. It was 8 o'clock at night. I remember it all. And so I opened it, you know, you, if a snake had been there, why, it would have bitten me. But uh, curiosity killed me. Um, so I opened it up, and there were 12 names with symptoms that they couldn't diagnose. I had done a story of environmentally of this defoliant that was causing problems among the Vietnamese. And indeed, the Nixon science advisor had eliminated it from being used in Vietnam. We're talking about 72 when he did that. This was 78. So I went out and did a couple interviews. The first interview was a, a wife. I went to the door and she said, well, I'm sorry, my, my husband died last week. He was an Air Force sergeant and we began talking. And he, I said, did he ever uh, talk about uh, a, a white mist that uh, they sprayed. She said, oh, yes. He said that some days uh, it looked like smog in Los Angeles. There was so much. Okay. That, and that's indicative of the clues that we all pick up as journalists right. to take you to the next level. The next level was uh, a little boy who was the son of the person I was interviewing, a master sergeant to special forces, play coup area, and uh, that was uh, saturated with uh, Agent Orange. And as he, in the middle of an interview where we lit up the living room, you know, with our lights, he came in and just innocently put his hand on the knee of his dad. And I looked down, and his little finger just was hanging by a thread of skin, congenital uh, problem. And I looked over to the cameraman, wondering if I had to stop. He said, no, I have it. Right. Zoomed in to the, the little finger. That picture, we hear worth a thousand words, probably established the Agent Owen story. And now, 200,000 vets having been compensated 50 major diseases having been linked to Agent Orange, which was a combination of two herbicides, 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T, one of which, the T, had dioxin. And um, even then, there was a question and enough for there to be deniers. Yep. Um, Always are. Yep. And so you, you just keep working. I had to go up against a Dow Chemical and the five major chemical companies. And along the way, there suddenly was a whistleblower. That's what you look for. There has to be somebody inside. And, you know, investigative reporting doesn't just pop up magically. No. And it was an email. And it was before email. Right. It was a memo. And the memo said... Just, just want to warn you, you've received additional orders because Agent Orange works so well to take down the foliage in Vietnam. And if we increase our manufacturing, that means the heat has, goes up and more dioxin, this most sub poisonous substance uh, that we make, um, will 
the ever more dangerous. So you're going into a weapons state grade uh, weapon, and um, it's a warning. It also was the basis for a hundred and eighty million dollar lawsuit, right? Uh, which and around the South, you produced a documentary shown in Washington D.C. Provoked the Veterans Administration to get the ball rolling on investigations, compensation, means by which this was addressed. Yes. There you go. For investigative reporting, you know, you have to fight your way through. And, and as you fight your way through, to your point, people watch as you're fighting your way through, and that's when whistleblowers who may not have been, who been, may have been discouraged or intimidated rise to the surface. Exactly, and it's happening every day. That's the voice of Bill Curtis. I'm Major Garrett. We're at Founding Farmers. Breakfast is on the way. I hope and trust. Oh, it's as oh I say it, here God. it arrives. Oh my Back God. for segment three in just a second. There's a microphone in front of me. What am I to do? From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're at Founding Farmers, Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Breakfast has arrived. Boy, is it good. Peter Sagal is with us. So is Bill Curtis. They together form the public face of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. There's a whole team behind them that puts that show together. Very popular show. Among the most popular shows on national public radio. And it is, as Peter said in the first segment, a kind of re- release valve uh, on the news of the week. Peter, do you find yourself and your audience in these particularly fraught and partisan days even more in need of your show? Yes, um, really. Uh, it, it's funny. Um, we do our show usually in a small theater in Chicago, and because the audience is smaller there than it is in places like Wolf Trap in D.C., we're able to say hello afterwards. We invite anybody who wants to to come say hello. And, and so I have a chance to talk to our audience on a weekly basis. And they all tell us, oh, my gosh, getting to your show, waiting for your show is what helps me get through the week, knowing that we'll do silly stories or, in regard to the serious main stories, we'll say the things on the radio that most people just shout at their radio and the privacy of their homes. That gives them a, a sense of hope and, at least, as you say, a release. And what I tell them is it does the same for us. I don't know what I would do reading the news every day if I didn't know that at the end of the week I get up to sta- I get to stand up in front of a lot of people and say very rude things about it. It's 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 therapy for all of us. And Bill, do you you've been around the news business a very long time? Uh, you're now in the as Peter said earlier in the comedy business a little bit. Is Trump good for comedy? You know, yes and no. We started off and Trump was great for comedy. I think everybody said, oh, this is going to be a, for a couple of years. Just think how lucky we are. And then, <laughs> then along spring, you say, haven't we told that joke before? And it gets a little boring. And so now we're at a stage where if we hear another Trump joke, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll eliminate it. Because it's, it's essentially trying to get a laugh about the same four or five behaviors mm-hmm. or four yep. or five notions of what has become of the public face of the presidency. That, that's a very polite way of putting it. Um, uh, it's sort of like repeating the same diagnosis, if you will. No, that, that's really a problem. And, and one of the things we wrestle with every week are, are ba- we're basically three questions. First question is, out of all the crazy things that have happened, four of them a day, you know, uh, what was what was the line? Uh, I, I do three impossible things before breakfast. Well, he does eight impossible things 
before the evening news every day. Out of all those things, which of them are we going to talk about? Because we're probably going to talk about one. Secondly, what can we say about that that we haven't said before? Because he's, all right, he lied. Well, he lies every day. All right, he said something profoundly ignorant. Well, he does that every day. All right, he said something profoundly offensive. Well, he doesn't. What can we say about that behavior that's different from the last time we talked about it? And lastly, and most importantly, how much does our audience really want to hear? Our audience, we know, wants to hear us say a little about it, but then they want us to stop and go on to other things. And figuring out where that line is on a week-to-week basis is, is probably the greatest challenge we have. Does any part of your orientation to this question, President Trump, humor, and your show, factor in that there is a not insubstantial portion of our country that likes it? That likes him, you yes. mean? Yes. Um, it, it's an interesting question. Uh, one of the things that I've been very proud of, of the show, for its decades, uh, is that we were a break from the constant partisan broil, right? Uh, my joke was that, you know, libtards and, you know, <laughs> conservatives alike all like a good fart joke. So we all thought of ourselves as the place where anybody, whatever their p- political leanings, could come in and enjoy the jokes that we do, even about politics. The way I see it is we're not part of the scrum on the field. We're up in the stands with our audience going, hey, look at that. Isn't that crazy? Right. And everybody can enjoy that because it's all crazy and it's all human. We don't really make fun of politics. We make fun of people. But Trump, like so many other things, breaks that down. You know, I mean, we're happy to make jokes about, about politicians and what they're doing without necessarily saying this is a terrible thing. I'll be the, uh, let me put it this way. If you really love Donald Trump and you think he can do no wrong and you think that he must be treated with respect and every utterance, I don't think you're going to enjoy our show. Right. And I'm sorry about that, but I don't know what we can do about it. Bill. To that point, I have a ranch in Kansas, and it's about three miles from a wonderful little town called Sedan. Every time I go down there, I realize that if I want to stay friendly with everybody, I don't bring up Trump. Because they like him. They don't watch television. They don't hang on CNN uh, as it plays on the desk like I do. So they jump over a lot of the, uh, the milieu that everybody chews over during the day to fill the broadcast day. Right. Uh, and they watch the evening news, maybe. Right. Or not. And so... When but they, uh, my experience, Bill, is they monitor the general trajectory of Trump. And if they get the feeling that he's knocking over Washington, as it was yep. before he got there, they're okay with that. That's and everything it. else everything else is in- incidental. So we have the feeling, you know, that he's peeling back the onion to take down the bureaucracy, to do the damage. They like that. Mm-hmm. They do. A- and, and a good a sizable portion of my audience oh, are yes. Trump supporters. Oh, yeah. We, I, I, we've had... More Trump cabinet officials on this show than any network other than Fox. Yeah. They could have we said... Take, we, take, we take the questions and their answers seriously, and we let them have their yeah. say. They could have said about Comey, Mueller. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was anybody killed? <laughs> uh, who cares? Was anybody killed? Um, yeah. uh, I want to play a soundbite. Uh, this is you, Peter, talking to the BBC in 2011. Uh, that's number five, Sarah. And then Wednesday, we started actually writing things down that are supposed to be funny, and we read them to each other, and we're like, is that funny? That's not funny. Oh, my God. And then, strangely enough, eventually you come up with something to say that's funny. I don't know how it works, but it always works. How does funny work, Peter? <laughs> if I knew, well, I was but 
it, what I said then. Major, you busybody. Yeah, I, I have no idea. All I can tell you is that, like a lot of comedy shows, we have a writer's room, which in our case is really in everybody's room. We all our producers and myself contribute, and and we just try to make each other laugh. And we started from the beginning on the basic assumption that we would only broadcast stuff that we thought was funny. As soon as you get into the place where you're like, I don't know if this is funny, but I think they'll think it's funny. Let's try it. You're lost. The only way you can do comedy in any any um, uh, media, be it stand-up or TV or whatever, is do what you think is funny and hope and pray that enough right. people out there agree with you. Right. And that's what we do. We just... When we the show started, it was just in the studio. It was just me and the cast and Carl Castle just trying to make each other laugh. Since we started doing it in front of a live audience, we're still doing the same thing, except each other now includes an audience in front of us of however many hundreds or thousands of people. No hidden agenda. No, we, we really don't care about anything no. except being funny. Being the funny. world is funny. Right. Yeah. So we had Samantha B on this program, and Samantha B has a funny line about Trump saying... Look, uh, everyone said to me after Trump was elected, oh, the jokes write themselves. Well, jokes don't write themselves. This is her. Jews write jokes. That's and her the funny. Jews are scared. <laughs> I, that joke, I have repeated that joke with due credit to Samantha. Yeah, exactly. She was on a program, and, and full credit to her. Does Trump and his existence make politics off limits or harder to make fun of? Do you find yourself moving in other directions um, to... Open that release valve a little bit wider? Well, it is Is it safer? It is. Uh, some, there's an analogy that it's, it, it predates Trump. It goes back, I think, probably well, almost to the beginning of our show, really, when we started with the Clinton, impress, uh, the Clinton presidency. There's a weird analogy, which is in World War II, one of the things that happened that shocked everybody is that the battlefield extended everywhere. People thought that, you know, the battlefield was where the soldiers were, and us back home, we're safe. Well, in World War II, with bombing and such, the battlefield became everywhere. You weren't safe anywhere. And that's kind of true culturally now. Everything is political. Right. Uh, I remember um, back during the 2004 election, my very conservative father-in-law at the time refused to eat Heinz ketchup because he associated it with John Kerry. And I'm like, if we're now arguing politics over ketchup, we've gone too far. And it really does seem that, like... Any, there's so many things. Well, we can't talk about that because right. that will make people mad. Because things become emblematic of some other thing. And somebody just decided that this was a thing and we need to boycott this company. Or, oh, you can't, you know, you can't go to Home Depot or you can't buy a MyPillow or, or, or you can't get a Patagonia because they don't like the price. It's like, just stop and, and let us have our lives without it being part of the fight. And that's something we deal with a lot. That's the voice of Peter Sagal. Bill Curtis is with us. We're at Founding Farmers, Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Breakfast so good. Back for second four in just a second. I like these breaks because you can get you back. Can, you can stuff food in your mouth. <laughs> From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. I guess the worst thing that could happen is I could get really used to it and start demanding, you know, all the accoutrements of being a television star. Mistresses, a drug habit, tabloid coverage. That would be bad. Is that what happens when you become a TV star? I don't know. Is it? <laughs> no, well, not for me. <laughs> oh, jeez. You I'm clearly don't three. have the, You need a better agent, oh, my friend. Oh, three. <laughs> <laughs> That's the voice of Peter Sagal. Bill Curtis is also with, also with us. We're at Founding Farmers in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Why? Because they're in town. Why? For two sold-out shows of their smash hit, long-running smash hit NPR show, Wait, wait, don't tell me. Peter, you're also an avid runner. I, I am. 
So I'm going to set you up for something because I want our audience to understand a little bit about your history with running. This is from a column you write for Runner's World, Road Scholar. It's about William Greer. I'm going to read you one paragraph, then I want, to pick a, want you to pick the story up. How far is the 24-mile marker, he asked, meeting Will Greer. The 24-mile marker was about 20 yards ahead of us, but William couldn't see because William is legally blind. And he was asking me because I was running next to him or just ahead of him and to the left because he has some peripheral vision on that side as his guide. Yeah, um, this was an interesting uh, thing that happened. Uh, I, I volunteered or was asked, really. I had no notion of doing it until I was asked to be a guide for a blind runner, as it happened, a gentleman named William Greer from Austin, Texas, in the Boston Marathon. I had been running marathons myself for some years and had kind of lost my motivation. So the idea of, of like doing it to help somebody else uh, seemed good, and it was in the middle of my marriage breaking up, so getting out of the house also seemed good. So there William and I were running this marathon. Um, and it was an interesting and challenging day. He had problems, and I helped him get through his problems, and he was sort of helping me get through mine, which weren't physical. And um, he made it after a very, it's a long story, which, by the way, I tell in a new book called The Incomplete Book of Running. And we got to the finish line, and he crossed it heroically. We didn't know if he could finish it, but he did. And we had just crossed the finish line, and we're celebrating his achievement. Uh, and that's when the bombs went off. Uh, this was the 2013 Boston Marathon. We literally had just run by the place where the bombs were uh, less than five minutes before and had stopped on the other side of the finish line to sort of recover. And so we were about 100 yards away when these two enormous explosions happened. And so we were in the middle of it. What's important to say is that we weren't hurt. Uh, We weren't really even traumatized because by the circumstances of the physical arrangement of things, we couldn't even see the damage that had been done. But we were were there in the middle of it. Um, I like to say that I've witnessed two world historical events, the Boston Marathon bombing and Seth Meyers making fun of Donald Trump at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Both both had big big after effects. I want to give our audience a sense, because only you of the people here can talk to it, of how shocking that was. It was so shocking, it was literally unbelievable in the sense that these two large explosions that happened. This does not happen at marathons. Marathons are peaceful, joyful Celebratory yeah, festivals. I mean, you know, you, f- you finish and everybody cheers and everybody hugs them. Hugs Especially there in Boston. Yeah, it's a huge it's, deal. Oh, yeah. To run the Boston Marathon, to finish the Boston Marathon is an achievement that a lot of amateur runners, most of them, look forward to and try to get it. So that's what people are doing. We happen to be with the group of runners who were charity runners, who were amateurs. These are not the people who are hoped to, to win it. So everybody was in a great mood, and then these explosions happened, and they just don't happen at times like that. So I, and I think a lot of other people, were in denial, i.e., that couldn't be a bomb. Bombs don't happen here. Uh, that must have been a, a car backfiring. Well, it was really too loud for that. And, and I think that there was this element of disbelief that this had happened that sort of suffused it. In a weird way, we, William and I, the other runners, were the last people to find out what had really happened. Because we didn't have our phones. We just run a marathon. Uh, we were in the finishing shoot where they weren't telling us why they were all hurrying us away from the area. So it was only, um, oddly enough, it was only until hours later when I actually was able to see the footage from the bomb site, like what we had just missed right. and how close we came to be in the middle of it. And I bring this up for a couple of reasons. One, you mentioned that you were a guide for William Greer, but you encouraged him, and that encouragement and his own fortitude 
got him across the finish line. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, I mean, it was, again, Importantly, I, on the other side of that bomb. So Two bombs. Yes, William had had, as often happens, as happened to me the first time I ran Boston, uh, a very difficult day. His legs were cramping, his gut was cramping, he had to stop a lot. And he told me, as we approached mile 25, the marathon, of course, is 26 miles, that he would have to stop and walk, as he had been doing. But I had encouraged him to try to finish the Boston Marathon on a run. It's a huge experience. You turn famously right into Hereford, left into Boylston. All of a sudden, you're in a canyon of heroes with people cheering, and you just don't want to walk that, man. He didn't think he could do it. But when we got to the point, he actually picked up his pace. He didn't want to walk the last mile of the Boston Marathon. So he ran that mile, and we crossed the line, and as I said, we're celebrating. And as you point out, it was only later when I sort of put it together and looked at the clock and realized that if he had walked as he really wanted and probably kind of had to do physically, we would have been strolling up to the finish line at the moment the bombs went off as opposed to being safely beyond it. Bill, I raised that for a couple of reasons, Uh, and I'd like you to give an evaluation based on your long journalism career. Two things there. One, eyewitness accounts are often shocked. People aren't sure exactly what's just happened when there's been a catastrophic event. Getting actual, accurate eyewitness accounts from people who were there, difficult, point one. Point two, ordinary people do extraordinary things all the time. All the time. In the law, you would call that best evidence to get that on-scene event eyewitness because we rarely have that. We have to go back and find those people that did it. So they're very valuable. On the other hand, in the law, eyewitness testimony is not exactly accurate. And it's one of the things that is uh, leading to exonerations. Mm -hmm. But um, you were witness, uh, a participant in all that. And now our memory will go back and reflect on the television pictures that we saw people kneeling, people trying to stop the blood, the wounds, um, screams, uh, the crowd running, emergency first responders coming. Uh, it was, it, that's kind of what our memory is all about. Right, and then the randomness of life. I mean, it's that you're chosen to be there, you chose to be there, he chooses to run, he doesn't run for a while, then he picks up running. All of these things are part of this randomness yeah. of life that is part of our news business every single day. Yeah. And trying to make sense of it is one of our great missions. All this randomness, tragedy, things that are worth celebrating, exultant moments, horrific moments, we try to figure out a way to contextualize if we can, but certainly explain accurately on a day-to-day basis. And it's the right Harder thing. Harder than it looks. Yeah, it's the right thing to do because what we are doing is gathering facts. All those facts will come together at a certain point, and we'll be able to make some conclusions. But we're the farmers out there. (laughs) We're the farmers. And because he's such a pro, how great is that? That's like a segue, folks. That's the term of art in our business. We're at Founding Farmers, Tyson's Corner, Virginia, wrapping up the show here. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial because we're going to play a game that's kind of like, wait, wait, don't tell me. Peter Sagel's been our guest. Bill Curtis. Thanks. See you next week, folks. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Tatiana Krachenko, and Jamie Benson. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman and Eric Susanen. 
Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.